so many ways, the pandemic has really highlighted the chasm between the haves and the have-nots. And now a new study shows how rich countries are hoarding COVID-19 vaccines and the world's poor are set to miss out. We take a look by the numbers. Wealthy nations like the U.S. have bought enough doses to vaccinate their entire population nearly three times over by the end of 2021, assuming the vaccines and clinical trials are approved. But in 67 developing or poor countries from Kenya to Pakistan to Ukraine, only 10% of the population will get vaccinated for COVID next year, according to the People's Vaccine Alliance. Now, the rich countries represent 14% of the world's population, but have already bought up 53% of the most promising vaccines. Topping the chart, Canada could vaccinate each Canadian five times with its supplies. 100% of Moderna's vaccine doses and 96% of Pfizer-BioNTech's have already been acquired by rich nations. Now, in contrast, Oxford AstraZeneca says it will provide 64% of its vaccine to people in developing nations, which would still only reach up to 18% of the world's population in 2021. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 52 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jason, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, I feel like it's it's time. It's time that we that we take a we take a hard look at these so-called vaccines. <laughs> I I don't know, man. I'm I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. I'm scrutinizing. I'm criticizing. I got questions. I'm looking at Elon Musk's Twitter feed. He's raising a lot of really interesting points. Uh, I'm hearing that these uh, these second shots. There's there's a lot of reactions happening to him. You know the the first shots. Oh, that's all right. But why is there gonna be two shots? I don't know, yeah. man. It's, it's 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 raising questions in my mind. Yeah, there's this weird thing that happens when you get the second shot where you become immune to COVID. And I don't know about I don't know about oh. you, but oh. <laughs> I don't know about you, but we need to form like a tribulation for us. You know, we need to a resistance of evangelicals and other reactionary folk to to oppose this shit. You know, we can't have people getting getting immune to COVID. You What's know- next? I, uh, I personally haven't gotten any of the vaccine shots, but my my wife has had both of them. And let me tell you, she uh, becoming the most militant communist I've ever known in my entire life. And maybe there's something to it. <laughs> we we need to put these shots under a microscope. I'm I'm I got it on a slide. I'm putting it under a microscope. I'm examining it. Oh shit! I'm seeing hammer and sickles up in this. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> we're in we're injecting people with with communism <laughs> and silicone. There's and then the microchips, right? Is that, isn't that oh. one of the main conspiracies? Microchips or something like that? That's right. Bill Gates is putting us all is putting is microchipping us. He's tattooing quantum dots on us. Uh, what is a quantum dot? Be, quantum dots are so that you can see who does and doesn't have a vaccine. Right. Th- this is this is some like new world order. Um, I'm sorry, World Economic Forum uh, <laughs> <laughs> type of uh, vaccine passport shit. <laughs> That just sounds like bullshit that McKinsey pitched like a board <laughs> quantum dots or like a I flavor know. of ice cream, you know, <laughs> it doesn't sound real. <laughs> it's, the, it's the ice cream of the quantum age, the quantum dots. Everything that someone has ever named quantum has been fake. 
just fake. Right? <laughs> just fake. Just fake. <laughs> I saw Quantum Leap. I know what that shit is. <laughs> Imagine if they put the COVID vaccine in ice cream. Mm, oh yeah. Then, mm. then I might do it. Then I might. I do can't it. do it. I'm lactose intolerant. I can't do that. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> can't get me, uh, Gates. <laughs> there was actually there's a news report um recently that like Italy stopped a shipment of vaccines to Australia and I said I was going to boycott spaghetti <laughs> <laughs> and cannolis, you know. Do they have cannolis yeah. over there? In, uh... They got cannolis, they got spaghetti. I'm boycotting all of it cuz Italy is preventing Australia from getting the vaccine. <laughs> It's about time. I'm proud of you. That's a brave thing to do. <laughs> Y'all don't need the vaccine. Nobody there has it. I know. That is the thing. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I mean, we were talking before the record about how, like, all the movies are being shot in Australia now, like Thor and shit, because, like, Australia is just, like, like basically COVID-free. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and you know, things are just back to normal here. You got, like... Chris Hensworth and Matt Damon, uh, you know, they did their 14 day quarantine. They're just like hanging out in Sydney. A friend of mine in Sydney saw Natalie Portman at a park on the bay just having her birthday party. You can't come to Australia unless you're a big celebrity here to shoot a big Hollywood movie. Um, otherwise, you, you got to stay out of our COVID free zone. Well, I mean, it depends, dude. I feel like you guys are going to have an outbreak now because like all the celebrities are bringing it back to, uh, to, uh, what do you call it? To Australia. I forgot the name of that entire sub. (laughs) 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 But yeah, you know, isn't that like a real, like everyone has to have, like, I need to see like your travel records for the past like five years. And then celebrities are just like, we got money. Like I can come in. We got money. We're bringing we're bringing commerce and economic growth right. to Australia. So you know, just all right, throw throw open the borders. Come on in. The Italy uh, stopping the shipment to Australia. I I feel like that's actually a really good segue here because you know, like I made a joke about I was boycotting spaghetti, but then I thought about it and I was talking to some other people as well who came to the same conclusion. It's like. Yeah, no, they should keep those vaccines. Like Australia is like like getting back to normal and in a way that like still kind of feels bizarre to be able to like go out and do stuff without like the fear of catching a deadly virus. It's like people in Italy are in Europe and the UK and the US like right. are having a hard fucking time. Yeah, you guys need the vaccines more than we do. Like we'll we'll ride it out. We'll 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 be all right. Uh it raised a question and um, I think it raises a really interesting point as well. And this is something that, you know, these critics, uh, these like, I don't know if people like Elon Musk are like totally on the anti-vax side. We'll, we'll call them like vax skeptics. These like vax skeptics, you know, it's very interesting that you never see them raising uh, perhaps the, the most pertinent and important question about vaccines, which is not... Like, oh, is this safe or like whatever? But more that question of who who's getting it? What's the distribution of the vaccines, right? Uh, it raises this question that I've I've seen being called vaccine apartheid. Right. Or vaccine nationalism, right? I think like probably the more poignant example a lot of people come up against or 
you know, witnesses like the discrepancy between Israeli vaccination rates and then Palestinian vaccination rates and how hard it is for the vaccine to move around to get to Palestine in the first place, considering it's under military occupation by Israel, right? Or even in the United States, right, where I think it's something like three or four percent of the you know black people here have uh, gotten a vaccine. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. the rates are pretty low overall, but three to four percent of them have gotten vaccinated. Is uh, you know wildly disproportionate to you know the fact that the vaccine is being distributed largely you know metropolitan areas, right, where you usually have larger black populations. But you know that's because uh, we're letting the market handle it, right? The market is it has this weird thing, this weird trick it does, where it uh, prioritizes wealthy, whiter individuals first, and then eventually trickles down to the rest after they've tried it out and tested it, you know, and tasted it a bit. It's very funny that we, you know, we keep calling this like, the unintended consequences right, of the right. market. It's like an accident. <laughs> yeah, it's an accident that just continues to play out every single fucking time in the same exact fucking way. Right. But no one's intending it to happen. That's the beauty of the free hand of the market is that there's no intentions guiding it, right? There's just like natural forces guiding it. And you just have to accept that. <laughs> yeah, I, no one wants to be racist. I mean, come no, on. No, no. No, no, no. Alleged racist. I mean, (laughs) I've read enough Andrew Sullivan to know that the alleged racists are the true victims of violence and purges and suppression here. Right. No, you're right. You're exactly right. I want to dive deeper into this, like, into the market of vaccines. And, And particularly, I mean, I think there's a bigger story here that that we'll explore in these episodes this week, I think looking at the the kind of political economy and the geopolitics of the pharmaceutical industry in general, right? In looking at this, Ed, you drew my attention to this story on DW, Deutsches Welles, which is, uh, I probably said that wrong, whatever, but it's a major German news site. Um, And it had this like really interesting um, sort of like fact check article, right? Like the the headline for the article is fact check. Will poor countries miss out on COVID-19 vaccinations? You know, I love a good fact check, right? Just give, just how many Pinocchios do I get with the claims of, uh, you know, like it, vaccine apartheid? Is it real? Mm, five Pinocchios. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. This was an interesting report, definitely, because, you know, it goes through, right? The premise of their reporting is like, look, you know, the Internet has been saying affluent countries are hoarding the vaccines, but it's it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And then it opens up. They're like, yeah, yeah, look, nine out of 10 people in poor countries, they're not going to get a vaccine in the next year. And, you know, like. Yeah, they're not going to get the vaccine, but it's not because they're hoarding it, uh, the the available doses. It's because the people in the rich countries need two doses, right? Because they're getting the two-shot vaccines, right? Canada's uh, biggest orders, it has up to 76 million doses for each of the three largest producers of the vaccines, right? That's because, you know, look, if only one of the companies is proven to have an effective vaccine, well, at least they'll know that they'll have enough for that one so that they could still do the entire population of 37, what, 0.6, million people, uh, giving them their two doses, right? So they're like, oh, look, look, you know, that true, that claim, misleading. Is it true? 
that poor countries will have delayed access to the vaccinations. And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, that's true. Um, the Duke Global Health uh, Innovation Center says, you know, current models predict that there's going to, there will not be enough vaccines to cover the world's population until 2023 or 2024. Mm-hmm. And Oxfam's health policy manager, uh, Anna Marriott, echoed this uh, to the news organization when she said that unless something dramatically changed, changes, right? That billions of people around the world are not going to receive a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19 for years to come, right? Which is um, uh, outrageous, right? That's where other solutions are supposed to come in. There's uh, something called COVAX, right? COVAX is supposed to be this initiative led by the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations and the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovations and the World Health Organization uh, to accelerate right the development and the manufacture and the production of COVID-19 vaccines, right? Their aim is to give 2 billion doses by the end of 2021 for the high-risk populations. And then long-term, they want to have funding from countries, right, that have enough doses to cover 20% of their population, right? And they also want self-financing companies, uh, our countries, Freudian slip there, uh, to, (laughs) (laughs) to purchase, right, different levels of population coverage, right? So if you can afford to, you buy into it. But if you can't, then you're covered, right? So it's supposed to, in theory, give you, you know, everybody like uh, access to a marketplace of vaccines, right? You know, like it's open enrollment in Obamacare market healthcare plans or some shit like that. And mm. the idea then is, okay, look, the majority of the high income countries, they'll commit to funding and then they'll allow low and middle income countries to be eligible through this advanced market commitment, right? Will they Ooh, be covered I, as- I love an advanced market <laughs> commitment. Right. And- we need advanced markets, right? Not none of these right. like primitive markets. No, we need advanced markets. As this piece kind of overlooks quickly, there are huge problems with Covax, right? I mean, a notable one immediately is that the United States is not in Covax, right? Or at the t- you know at the time of the fact check wasn't, which was you know at the turn of this year, and yeah, most of the global I mean, south should, is mm-hmm. going. I should say that uh, last month Biden pledged to contribute four billion dollars to Covax, so. right? So, right. So, like, Trump was anti-COVAX. Um, uh, and, and Biden uh, is, yeah, saying, like, oh, no, like, we, we, we pledge to contribute some, some money to COVAX. And then you have, you know, COVAX commitments coming from most of Europe, Latin America, Middle East, China, with, the, of course, Global South, you know, the low and middle income countries being eligible for AMC. But you also have, you know, this large question being raised, you know, are vaccination producers putting profits over public health? And our German friends at this newspaper say that that's an unproven claim, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, the People's Vaccine Alliance, they, you know, they quote their cl- uh, demand, right? All vaccines, treatments, and tests must be monopoly free, mass produced, distributed fairly, and made available to all people in all countries free of charge, right? Um, and so the idea here is that, you know, pharmaceutical companies, research institutions, they should share the science and the intellectual property behind the vaccines so that safe and effective doses can be quickly produced rapidly all over the planet, right? And, you know, make the vaccination open source, right? You know, Doctors Without Borders said that AstraZeneca is an example that we'll come back to as, you know, a problem child in the vaccine production and the, you know, the race to to extinguish a covid Profitably, um, you know, AstraZeneca committed to not profiting from its vaccine during the pandemic, right? Mm. But 
it still has, you know, lateral, you know, room uh, to raise prices as early as next year in July, right? And the CEO said, we will treat the development of the vaccine as a response to a global health, a public health emergency and not a commercial opportunity, right? You know, and Johnson & Johnson has come in, as uh, DW says, uh, saying that they'll make the vaccine available on a not-for-profit basis. But Pfizer is not doing any of this shit, right? Because Pfizer turned down U.S. government funding and used you know, almost $2 billion of its own money to develop the vaccine. So they want to be more, they want, they, they want less shackles around pursuing a profit since they put some of their money into it goes the the rationale right yeah i mean we'll we'll come back to this later again as well but like pharmaceutical companies are the beneficiaries of state law dress in in such a massive way right like they are constantly receiving huge subsidies from governments to do research and development on uh, on medicines and then so that they can then like privatize the profit. So it's, it is very, I think, notable that Pfizer here is, is saying, no, 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 we're going to turn down U.S. government funding. We're going we're gonna to start this baby up with our own $2 billion so that we can have the perfect uh, argument and justification for saying that uh, actually we don't owe anything to to the public, right? Because we didn't take we didn't take taxpayer money. Uh, we did this. We pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We created the Pfizer COVID vaccine um, by our own merits, and therefore we can do with it what we want on the free and open market. And that's the way it's got to be, right? You know, I mean, I think pharmacy the pharmaceutical research model or the business model is like a pretty smart one from the perspective of them, right? Because it funnels billions of dollars into their. Um, you know, pockets. And part of this argument is that, look, you need to create incentives because it's a risky enterprise and then you can throw billions at something that doesn't work. And so they need to have, uh, you know, a reliable guarantee that they'll make the profits from it, either through IP, you know, either through lucrative deals with the government for uh, distribution that uh, or that protects them from liability. I mean, there are all sorts of arguments uh, defending this, right? But at the end of the day, one thing you should just do is like look at what actually happened, you know, like what's what's going on with Covax, you know, as one example. Like, is Covax going well? You know, in Canada, it's not going well, right? In, in, in Canada. You know, COVAX has resulted in the the country has you know both signed up as a self financing country, right, to obtain the vaccines through COVAX. Uh, but it's also donating to the uh, to the AMC, right, uh, so that other you know you know countries in the global south can have access uh, to finances, right, to buy vaccines. And you know, ostensibly, it's created to equitably distribute the vaccines uh, in countries all over the world, right. But the reality has been is that as I was just talking about, you know, countries like Canada struck out deals with uh, these pharmaceutical companies, exclusive bilateral agreements with them, right? Where, okay, you give us like large amounts of this vaccine, um, we'll protect you from liability um, and you will give us like, you know, access to it. And then discovering that they can't actually meet the rollout demands, right? And that, not only can they not meet the demands, but now that pe- because they can't meet the demands, because they had these shitty plants, these shitty agreements, healthcare workers, frontline workers, vulnerable groups in these high income countries are not getting the vaccine at the rates that they should be. But when they do get it, it's also taking away from the fact that high risk populations in the rest of the world right, are not getting it because they're in a low income country. So they're not 
you know, prioritized, right? You know, Canada mm-hmm. can vaccinate its low risk people long before any country in the global south is going to be able to vaccinate the high risk people in its population, which is yeah, ridiculous. It, it really marks this like just a huge inequity uh, of access to healthcare for sure. And what, you know, everyone agrees is a global pandemic, right? Like everyone agrees that like, no, everyone needs to be vaccinated uh, to ensure that we can eradicate COVID. But as you just laid out, like that's happening in very different ways in different parts of the world. I mean, you know, let's go back to COVAX, right? That, you know, it was, a, it was established with this intent to equitably distribute vaccines to countries around the world in order to vaccinate the high-risk people, regardless of where they lived, right? You know, if all countries participated in COVAX uh, and and used this pool of funding and and these uh, commitments uh, and used this as, you know, their primary mechanism of procuring and uh, accessing vaccines, then, then right, like we may have seen a more equitable distribution of vaccines around the world for people like frontline healthcare workers and other vulnerable populations. But as you just laid out, Ed, like that, that is not how it's playing out in actuality. Dr. Jason Nickerson, who's uh, the humanitarian affairs advisor with Doctors Without Borders, told Yahoo! Canada um, in this story about COVAX that, quote, many wealthy countries went out and struck their own bilateral agreements with pharmaceutical companies, much in the way Canada did. Effectively, they've hedged their bets to access larger quantities or quantities more quickly. So here, this model that you just laid out with the way that Canada's doing it, like they're not the exception here. A lot of other countries that are in the same position are doing the same thing. I mean, Australia, where I live, has also struck this bilateral agreement, I think, with Astra. Zeneca um, for and, and did that ages ago for access to COVID vaccines. Right? Like they're throwing their weight around in the in the global market um, to ensure that their people get vaccinated before anyone else does. Right? It, it really does come down to a question, as so many of these things do, of who's worthy. Right? Who's worthy of being vaccinated? Who's most important? Who needs to be in the front of the line? for vaccinations. And unsurprisingly, it's the wealthy countries in in the world that are saying our people need to be in the front of the line, right? Like we're we're, we're paying for VIP tickets to the vaccine concert. Um, Everyone else needs to just wait in the parking lot and see if they can like, you know, find somebody selling some vaccines at the back of the truck, you know? And what, what this does is that, you know, this, this kind of failure of COVAX has resulted in this highly inequitable rollout of the vaccines, as Nickerson explains. You know, for the last two months, healthcare workers and other vulnerable people in high-income countries are receiving the vaccine, while those same demographics of people in low-income countries are not. They just simply are not. Uh, Nickerson goes on to explain, quote, by jumping the line, Canada will be in the position to vaccinate low risk people long before any uh, low and middle income countries have the opportunity to vaccinate high risk people. Just reiterating what you've said there, Ed. And Nickerson goes on to say that would be a situation that's frankly indefensible particularly if the vaccines being used to vaccinate low-risk people in Canada are being drawn from COVAX, a mechanism that ensures countries that don't have the same purchasing power as Canada have timely, equitable access to vaccines. So it's not only that um, countries like Canada are jumping the line, 
but they're doing so by drawing their vaccines out of what ought to be a common pool here, a common pool of vaccines with equitable access built into it. The framing, right, of that DW piece, the fact-checking piece, right? It's like, okay, part of their argument was like, it's a lot more complicated than the rich countries are hoarding uh, the vaccines or that they're making all the money off of them, right? But as we've seen with COVAX, for example, like it's structured such that they don't even really need to, Canada doesn't, I mean, Canada made a grievance where it effectively is hedging its bets and hoarding large numbers of doses that are not even being delivered in a timely fashion. But there's also uh, the fact that, you know, because of how COVAX is working, right, that some of the vaccines are probably going to be taking away from uh, low and middle income countries with high risk populations that don't have the same purchasing power as like low risk populations in this country. And then there's also the fact that like, you know, Big Pharma is profiting off of, you know, or planning to make profits off of the vaccines. I mean, this is a core element of the business model for pharmaceutical companies. I mean, this was evident as early back as March last year, right? You know, in March, The Intercept had this, uh, you know, really great report on how the pharmaceutical industry was gearing up to uh, make profit uh, by Sharon Lerner, right? You know, one key thing or one key note that they hit on is that, you know, in the United States, the pharmaceutical industry is is in really a unmatched position to make money because there are not price controls that are established here like there are in other countries. And there are also a lot of other regulatory, um, there's a lack of other, you know, regulatory devices or frameworks here that would prevent companies from uh, just, you know, being greedy. <laughs> and so drug companies have freedom over setting prices, you know, for their products here more than they would elsewhere, right? And they have leeway because their lobbyists have been able to insert amendments, provisions, language that allows them to get, you know, billions of dollars uh, in each of the stimulus packages uh, to maximize their profits. You know, they were able in March, right, they had been able to get language inserted into the $8.3 billion coronavirus uh, package that was passed, you know, as the first uh, stimulus package, right, or the first relief bill, right? You know, Sharon writes that initially some lawmakers had tried to ensure that the federal government would limit how much pharmaceutical companies could reap from vaccines and treatments for the new coronavirus that they developed with the use of public funding. In February, Representative Jan Skidowski from a Democrat from Illinois and other House members wrote to Trump pleading that he, quote, ensure that any vaccine or treatment developed with U.S. taxpayer dollars be accessible, available and affordable, end quote. A goal, they said, couldn't be met if, quote, pharmaceutical companies are given authority to set prices and determine distribution, putting profit-making interests in head of health priorities, unquote. And so when the coronavirus funding was being negotiated, right, Skowski tried again, and he wrote to the uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, uh, early March, saying that it would be unacceptable if the rights to produce and market that vaccine were subsequently handed over to a pharmaceutical manufacturer through an exclusive license with no conditions on pricing or access, allowing the company to charge whatever it would like and essentially selling the vaccine back to the public who paid for its development. But, you know, Republicans opposed that language because it would restrict the ability to make profits. And they argued it would stifle research and innovation. Right. And so Azar, who it's also important to note, the the secretary of health and human services, Alex Azar, was at one time 
the top lobbyist and the head of operations for a far, another pharmaceutical giant, Eli Lilly, right, before joining the Trump administration, you know, told uh, Shkikowski, you know, that he shared her concerns. The bill then on and, you know, went on to you know, basically be a, a, a handout, right, to these companies, right, allowing them to ensure that they could set whatever rates they wanted for these vaccines and the drugs that they developed with public subsidies. And the final aid package not only omitted language that would have limited drug makers' intellectual property rights, it also left out language that w- it had been in an earlier draft that would have allowed the federal government to take any action if it had concerns that the treatments or vaccines developed with the public funds were priced too high. We have to underscore that point as well, that like the U.S. healthcare system is unique in the world in the ways that it is designed to ensure maximum profits for pharmaceutical companies, maximum profits for healthcare providers. You know, we talked about in our last episode, right, uh, looking at Clover Health the ways in which, you know, the, this so-called uh, innovation that the Republicans want to maintain, I, it looks like companies like Clover Health, right? That's the innovation, right? Like it looks like mm-hmm. people like Clover Health CEO Vivek Garapali doing things like extracting $157 million from uh, hospitals in New Jersey for price gouging, right? Like that's what it looks like in the US. Uh, underscore as well, right? Like I live in Australia. Um, it has a private insurance system, but also has a socialized um, healthcare system as well. And but there's also like there's price controls on how much healthcare cost, how much you can charge people for it. I'm so traumatized by living in the U.S. and living in the U.S. without health insurance for quite a while as well. I don't want to interact with the healthcare system because I'm like, I don't have the money for it, right? I'm not a millionaire. I don't have the money to interact with the healthcare system. And that trauma, like traumatized is so deep in me um, that like it blows my mind when I do have to do stuff, you know, in Australia, I'm excluded from the socialized healthcare system here, from the Medicare system in Australia because I'm not a resident. Um, I'm not a citizen and I'm not a permanent resident. And, and so I'm excluded from it. So I have to rely on private insurance. And it's like pretty shitty private insurance, which means that like I end up paying out of pocket for a lot of stuff. But even then, shocked at how little that it cost because there are regulations and price controls in place. Like, um, for example, a friend of mine who's also American uh, living here from the U.S. and isn't part of like Medicare, went to the pharmacy, had to get a prescription filled for some medication and had to pay for it out of pocket. And the pharmacist was like, oh, you have to pay for this out of pocket. Are you you sure? It's going to be really expensive. And she was like, yeah, like, I, I mean, I have to. How much, how much is it going to cost for this, like, for you to fill this prescription? The pharmacist was like, I'm sorry, but it's going to cost $75 to fill this prescription. And she, she was like, I, I had to resist laughing in the guy's face to be like, that's all right. Yeah, like this same medication would have cost $500 in the U.S., right? It, it, it's shit like that, like... You know, I've gone for for like testing, like an ultrasound test, right? And like had to pay out of pocket for and it cost like, you know, like 50 bucks or something like that. I mean, it's just fucking wild Um, living somewhere else where there is actually uh, rules and regulations and price controls and constraints on the free and open market to see 
just how much and how possible it is to actually have a healthcare system where you can afford to pay out of pocket for things because it's relatively cheap and inexpensive to do so. Well, you know, that's why you have our beautiful system where, you know, Jared Posner is author of this um, book, uh, Pharma, uh, Greed, Greed Lies and the Poisoning of America. Right. It's a you know, expose on the, tr- the trillions made in the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, the sources of the revenue and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, he, he argues or lays out that since the 1930s, right, the National Institutes of Health, which is our, uh, you know, our curse system, has uh, poured about nine hundred billion dollars into research that drug companies have then used, patented brand name medications and then, you know, turned them for profit. Right. So every single drug, you know, as one example, every single drug approved by the FDA between 2010 and 2016, you know, was based off science funded with tax dollars through the NIH, mm. according to the uh, advocacy group, the Patients for Affordable Drugs. They spent a hundred, taxpayers spent a hundred billion dollars on that research alone, right? And some of these drugs were developed, uh, I mean, are, and other drugs that have been developed over the years using public funding have been huge earners for these companies, right? You have drugs like the HIV drug ACT, uh, the cancer treatment uh, Chimera, which uh, Novartis uh, sells for $475,000 if you need it. You know, these are uh, just like some of the consequences of having a a system where you privatize, uh, you socialize the risk and privatize the reward, right? And Posner writes that, you know, another example he uses is the antiviral drug Sofosibir, all right? And it's used to treat hepatitis C, and it comes from research that was funded by the NIH. The drug is now owned by Gilead, which charges $1,000 per pill, Right, more than many people with hepatitis C can afford, as uh, Sharon Lerner writes, uh, and that doesn't stop Gilead because Gilead's earned forty-four billion dollars from the drug during its first three years in the market. You would thought like that whole bullshit with Martin Scarelli a few years ago when he got popped for like just un unbelievable like profit margin increases on this medication but they won't. I mean, then they don't give a fuck, right? Because for them, right, you know, the real thing. That matters is that, you know, like Axios reported, you know, 63% of all healthcare profits in the United States are for drug companies, right? And they lobby, they'll spend a quarter, they'll spend almost a quarter of a billion dollars on lobbying in 2019, right? Far more than any other sector in the United States. It's tw- the biggest, the second biggest se- sector, right? The electronics manufacturing and equipment sector. You know, it's still half as much as the $295 million uh, that the pharmaceutical uh, industry uh, spends on um, lobbying, right? That itself, it's still, you know, it's still well more than double of what the oil and gas companies are spending on lobbying, right? The industry doesn't care. It does campaign uh, campaign contributions. It does the lobbying. It showers both parties with its money. I mean, there's a huge problem that has to be overcome. The fact that no matter who you're voting for, you can't really vote against the interests of the pharmaceutical industry, right? The Democratic primary, Sharon writes, you know, Joe Biden led the pack among recipients of contributions from the healthcare and pharmaceutical industries, right? This is going to be something that is going to be becoming more and more important as we start to see the vaccine rolled out overseas, right? As we start to come up against the hard questions of how to make sure there's equitable access overseas, Despite the protests of uh, pharmaceutical companies at home and the lobbyists at home who paid a lot of money to make sure that they would still be able to make a lot of money, right? 
Yeah. And a lot of these concerns that you're rising as well around like, you know, uh, the big pharma COVID profiteers, right? Like these reports and these concerns were only, you know, that was like a year ago. That was back in March that people were raising these issues. And then, you know, only a few months later, you know, well into the pandemic by this point, it was clear that this was going to be a free-for-all, right? Like there was a great Rolling Stone report on, you know, these these big pharma COVID profiteers that explains on June 29th, 2020, while America, you know, remained transfixed by anti-policing protest, the chairman and CEO of the pharmaceutical company Gilead, which you've already brought up, issued a much anticipated announcement, right? So in this like open letter that Daniel O'Day wrote, uh, again, and, and when we see like open letters by the CEOs of, uh, of like a pharmaceutical company, you, you got to know that this was not just written uh, by this guy, right? These are letters written by committee, right? You got the lawyers in the room, you got the marketers in the room, you got the public relations people in the room, right? Like the point of these open letters, um, especially when you're releasing it in the midst of like widespread protest and civic action across the US, right? Like you want to make yourself sound like the good guy, right? You're the savior here. In this open letter, uh, the the CEO of Gilead explains how you know much of his company planned on uh, charging for a course of of remdesivir, right? This medication that at the time was saying you know one of many possible treatments for COVID nineteen. He wrote, "Quote: In the weeks since we learned of rem, uh, remdesivir's potential against COVID nineteen, one topic has attracted more speculation than any other." What price might we set for the medicine? Yeah, Good I, price. I, I love this. I love this framing right here as well because it's just like, you know, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of people, a lot of conspiracies out there saying, hmm. uh, "Oh, we're we're going to price gouge for this." You know, well, let me lay it down with you. And so, you know, so he wrote that before just like diving straight into a masterpiece of corporate doublespeak, right? Like the CEO noted uh, in this letter, a study by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, right? A division of the National Institutes of Health, uh, you know, and that institute, we should note, is directed by or was directed by esteemed member of the resistance, Anthony Fauci, uh, our technocratic savior. Friend uh, of the show. <laughs> so the CEO of Gilead, you know, noting this study showed that COVID-19 patients taking remdesivir uh, recovered after 11 days compared with 15 days for placebo takers. In the U.S., Gilead CEO wrote, quote, earlier hospital discharge would result in hospital savings of approximately $12,000 per patient. So... I mean, this is this is fucking hilarious here, right? Mm -hmm. Right. The implication of this letter, which you know he's writing in this glowing terms, like our medication is, you know, going to save hospitals twelve grand a patient. It's going to get them out of the hospital four days earlier mm -hmm. than if they didn't take the medication. If they only took a placebo. So here what he's implying is that uh, simply by shortening hospital stays by four days on average, remdesivir was worth how much? $48,000 a dose. You know, that O'Day might come to this conclusion 
was, you know, oh, for them, not this is not outlandish, right? It might sound outstanding to us, but but we're not the CEOs of a pharmaceutical company. Let me tell you, it's not outlandish. Gilead became infamous. How is this not outlandish? It was because Gilead became infamous only a few years ago for charging $84,000 per course of treatment for Sivaldi, which was a groundbreaking hepatitis C drug, right? So, oh, you, we got popped for charging $84,000 a course for this, this other drug. Well, we're only going to charge $48,000 a dose for this drug. That is almost half price off. Th- these are hot discounts, buddy. Th- th- we're marking it down to sell. Reduce price to sell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're hitting that Walmart model here. Rolling back <laughs> prices. Rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> Gilead's policies for pricing have more than once prompted congressional hearing, as in the case of another drug, Truvada, which was to a drug to combat HIV transmission that was developed in part with the aid of government grants and that earned Gilead how much? more than $30 billion in revenue. Ed, tell me, would they try something similar at a time of unprecedented medical terror with one of the few available possible COVID-19 treatments? Would they have the gall to do this? No, you know, they're a good company. I mean, they're named Gilead after all. I mean, they they would never do something like that, I think. (laughs) Although uh, we we can see the value that Remdesivir provides, as as Gilead CEO put it, I you know we could have charged forty eight thousand dollars a dose here. Day wrote in his open letter, or rather, Oday wrote in his open letter, uh, "quote We have decided to price Remdesivir well below this value." He went on to say that to quote ensure broad and equitable access at a time of urgent global need. So Gilead has looked into themselves, their heart of hearts, and they've generously decided to place the price for Remdesivir at a measly $3,000 and some change per patient. Oh, hallelujah. Mm. Hallelujah. This is, this mm-hmm. is public good at its finest, right? Public health for public good. Now, this this didn't come as good news to everybody, of course, right? Investors, for one, were bummed the fuck out, right? Gilead even undercut the prediction of uh, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, which is a, a watchdog for the pharmaceutical industry that priced or rather calculated a fair price for remdesivir at $4,500 per treatment. Well, G- Gilead's announced price was almost $1,500 cheaper than that, right? This is great for everyone. But of course, it, it, it caused a tremor among Wall Street. And, and as a result, Gilead's share prices fell. Gilead had already offended the gods of capitalism by donating hundreds of thousands of existing doses of remdesivir to the government. What self-respecting American corporation voluntarily undermines its own markets, setting prices lower than a industry watchdog calculated as a fair price. Not Gilead, as it turns right. out. <laughs> Not any pharmaceutical company. Uh, you, you, what, what Americans need to understand about the race to find vaccines and treatments for COVID-19 is, is that in the U.S., 
even when companies appear to downshift from maximum greed levels. And it's not at all clear that this is what they've even done with the coronavirus treatments. The production of pharmaceutical drugs is still a a nearly riskless subsidy-laden scam. You know, it's really important, and you know, I was going through this long section to BB's, you know, really great. And you should read, uh, if you're listening, you should read to uh, Matt BB's um, Big Pharma's COVID-19 Profiteers piece, because this is like a amazing dive into it, right? This is a pretty fucking horrible, <laughs> you know, by August, it's pretty obvious it's going to be a horrible shit show in which these companies are going to make out like bandits or um, looting you know, everything and stealing everything that they can that's not nailed down, right? But also, I think it's important to note because, like, there are attempts, there are legitimate attempts, you know, in March by Skidowski. Um, and here, as we'll see, by uh, a, ta- a Democrat from Texas, uh, Lloyd Duggett, right? who you know tells to be the the power of the industry combined with fear is driving extraordinary spending and it all suggests rosy times ahead for the pharmaceutical industry right now Duggett has been like a you know outspoken sometimes lonely voice warning about the pandemic profiteering uh, to be writes, and he cautions that the rush for a cure is already padding the bottom lines of drug companies remedesvir how do you say it I, I don't like Remdesvir, something Rimdesvir? like that. Remdesvir? Okay. Who I'll can pronounce all a little of these bit. drug names are designed <laughs> to not be pronounceable. This is the problem with uh, the pandemic and then with also reading everything and not saying it out loud that just the, I'm realizing over time how many words I have only ever read and not said out loud ever to another human being. Right? <laughs> Remdesvir <laughs> is one of them. Uh, you know, the, it's a... Because I'll use, use shorthand in a conversation to say the vaccine. You know, uh, Remdesivir and we, and we is have the, to, And we have to applaud that, Ed, because it means <laughs> that you're learning by reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, the literacy is really hard. I've been, I've been learning. I've been hitting the books, right? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, Remdesivir is uh, described by Duggett as being pulled off the scrap heap. Right, just to throw away um, our pharmaceutical, you know, product that is now a massive revenue driver. Okay, well, why is it pulled off the scrap heap? Um, to be right, say it was because it failed to be approved as a treatment for hepatitis, right, and free Ebola. But now it's one of the most in-demand products in the world, and its price isn't quite so low as Gilead claims. For one thing, ICER reported it costs just ten dollars of raw materials to make each dose from Desivir. Generic drug producers in Bangladesh and India were already making a version of it, and their price per course of treatment was $600. Meanwhile, Gilead's own price for governments around the world, the price it settled on for everyone except American private insurers, was $2,340 per treatment. Moreover, ICER's assessment of Remdesivir's price relied significantly on the idea that it would actually help the lives of COVID-19 sufferers if the drug doesn't impact mortality, uh, says Dave Wettrap of ICR, and only shortens recovery time, we can figure a course of treatment is worth about $310. So, to, and I, I think this is a good recap, you know, to put a rose on this part uh, from Tabibi's place that he, he writes, you know, Gilead, a company with a market capitalization of more than $90 billion, 
which also um, shout out to Stripe for now uh, securing a funding round of $600 million, placing it at $95 billion of valuation, making it the most valuable company in Silicon Valley. I just wanted to shout out our good friends at Stripe who are doing... a. Just uh, doing, the Lord's work, doing the Lord's work by facilitating <laughs> market transactions. That we are totally not in a bubble. The market, mm, not a, <laughs> and, not a bubble. <laughs> and setting and 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 importantly, setting it as uh, bigger than Goldman Sachs, right? Yes, Gilead, Stripe, like they all have valuations bigger than Goldman Sachs. Oh, Coinbase. Coinbase also hit 90 billion, baby. Let's go to the fucking moon, right? That's another (laughs) one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very thankful for our Silicon Valley overlords um, and their valuations. I just wanted to give I just wanted to give thanks and tell them I see them. You know, I hear them. Returning to the recap. um, Returning to Big Pharma. Away from Big Tech. Back to Big Pharma. (laughs) Right now. Yeah. Now to the other sector of the economy that we hate with a passion. Apartheid Moonbase is Kanye's new album title. <laughs> Let's not give him any ideas, okay? <laughs> so Gilead is now, okay, $90 billion market capitalization. It's bigger than Goldman Sachs. It develops an antiviral drug with the help of $99 billion in American government grant money. Though the drug may cost as little as $10 per dose to make and is produced generically in Bangladesh for about a fifth of the lift's price and costs about a third less in Europe than it does in the U.S., Gilead ended up selling hundreds of thousands of doses at the maximum conceivable level, i.e. the American private insurance price, which incidentally might be about 10 times what it's worth, given its actual medical impact. So in other words, to answer the question that was raised all the way at the beginning when, you know, the dude was reading the letter uh, to the open letter, right? The CEO open letter. And he's like, look, some of you may be asking, are are we going to fuck over the the patients? Are we going to price gouge everybody? Are we going to come up with some ridiculous price like we have for every other major medical product that we are uh, offering? Uh, The answer is yes. We are going to do exactly that. <laughs> and they did. It's a wild place to be in a market. because, And we'll get into this you know, later as well. But because of intellectual property rights, essentially, right? Like, like they're able to set prices. And, and it's a wild place to be in a market to, to be able to be a price setter for your product in such a way that people now expect that a drug is going to bankrupt you. Right. To take it like you need a drug Mm -hmm. for hepatitis C, for HIV, for any kind of disease. You expect that it's going to bankrupt you. And it sets them up in this place where like you like Gilead CEO and chairman can say, we're actually doing something really good here. We are not going to take advantage of of a global public health emergency. We're not going to take advantage of people's um, fear and terror about being infected by this fatal disease. Because we are going to set our prices below the calculated quote unquote fair price of an industry watchdog doesn't you know, please clap. I'm patting myself <laughs> on the back. I'm asking you to clap. It's great. We are great. We are doing great things. But then you dive into the actual finances here, and they're still poised to make. 10 times profit margins on the cost of the actual drug itself, right? It's wild because what they're saying is that like we could make a hundred times, a thousand times profit margins on this drug, but we have decided to only make 10 times 
profit margins on this drug. Isn't that wonderful? Are we magnumonious? Aren't we so good? And they are. They are good. They, you know, in some universe, they're good, right? And I mean, I think, and this, you know, kind of touches on there's other parts at work here too, right? What is the reason why the United States has such a shitty uh, in the relationship with the pharmaceutical industry? I mean, part of it, you know, TBB points out is that uh, most countries, pretty much every other country in the world has a three-stage process for approving and pricing prescription drugs, right? First, governments ask if the drug is safe. If the answer is yes, then they ask how effective the drug is. Okay, if it passes these first two hurdles, most governments then ask how much more effective the new drug is compared to existing medicines. This efficacy calculation becomes the starting point for price negotiations, which usually involve threatening to keep the drug out of the company's state-insured uh, pool of medications if the company does not come up with a reasonable price. The U.S. Uh, says fuck it, right? And skips or botches these steps. First, there's no regulatory review that determines the comparative efficacy already off to a great start. In the U.S., the FDA review ends after the first two steps. Once a drug is deemed safe and effective, it goes on the market. Then comes the Whopper. All FDA-approved drugs must, by law, be covered by Medicaid. This rule dates back to 1990 with the creation of the Medicaid drug rebate program. The grand bargain that was supposed to be built into this reform concept was that all FDA drugs would be purchased by Medicaid provided that manufacturers gave the government either the best price available to insurers or 23.1% discount over the drug's list price. Problem. If you don't have a comparative uh, efficacy uh, a feature, right, in your regulations, uh, if you don't have any price controls, if you don't do price negotiations, uh, can anyone guess how uh, you actually are able to get the best price available to insurers? I'll tell you how you can't. So you, you pull fucked. it out of the hat. You just yeah. you you you, <laughs> you, uh, ass, right? you you start up the big bingo machine and you just start <laughs> pulling random numbers and then you string them together and you say this is the price of the drug, right? And if you if you really want to get fancy, you can do you can uh, go over to the UK. Uh, you know, use what our friends at Trash Feature call the racism computer, right? And type in you know play around with it a little bit. Type in see see what price. Makes sense that you can get away with by charging black people for access to this medication. And then you come back to the United States, you know, with your little, your, your little crumpets and your nice little you know, new accent and your new <laughs> racist friends. And uh, you give that price to the government and you force feed it down uh, the throats of the consumers in this country. The UK. Never once. <laughs> and then you accidentally also come back come kind of a turf as well. I don't know. Like it's, yeah. there's just something um, in the water. Something in the oh, water. Definitely. I mean, uh, we won't even get into that as well. Trash Future has done some really great episodes um, around the ways in which the medical system in the UK is like extremely trans exclusive. So they've got the turf computer and the racism computer. They're, they're dual booting here. They, they've got like, mm -hmm. you know, they've got like a fucking quantum. They're overclocking, that's, right? That's the okay. real quantum computing going on. The racism computer and the turf computer, all of it to um, decide how much a drug is going to cost and who gets access to it, right? Skipping that step of comparative efficacy is really important as well that, you know, as Taibi uh, points out in, in his, you know, investigation into this, right? Like that is a really crucial step because it allows companies to, under the name of innovation, just constantly be pumping out new stuff, right? It might not be 
much better, right? You might end up getting where it's like uh, a placebo means that you're in the hospital for 15 days and the uh, $48,000 drug means that you're in the hospital for 11 days. But that's that's innovation, baby. That's the name of the market, right? Like innovation just means continually pumping stuff out. And because it's innovative, you can charge a price premium for it, right? It's a way of outpacing generic manufacturers as well. You know, as that investigation points out, right, like generic manufacturers in places like Bangladesh are able to produce these drugs for hell of a lot cheaper. But what makes pharmaceutical companies work the way that they do is that they are constantly doing, thanks to state subsidies, research and development. They are constantly doing innovation. Um, it just might mean tweaking one little thing in the drug and then putting it out under a new brand name, new marketing, new claims about its efficacy. And then that becomes the drug that everybody now has to take. And because it's new and because there's not a generic version of it, they can charge massive amounts of money. And then they just do it all over again. That's that's this vicious cycle of innovation that Republicans that are against these bills regulating the pharmaceutical industry, that's the kind of innovation they say, no, no, we need that innovation in the market. We need innovation for extracting monopoly level profits from sick and vulnerable people. Like I said last weekend, it's called healthcare, not health cheap. And we have to keep that in mind. That is the driver of innovation in pharmaceuticals here. Yeah, dude, if you want, if you want to be if you want to be healthy, just pay for it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Apparently, you just don't want to be very healthy. You're not right. You're not investing in yourself. Self-care is paying $50,000 a dose for a drug mm-hmm. that you need to live. That's self-care. And now this brings us back full circle because now we've come, we come back to the way that Big Pharma's business model works, which, you know, as that piece in The Intercept talked about, and as TBB goes into detail, relies heavily on these public subsidies through the state, right? Um, the intellectual work is carried out largely by the state, then punted to the private companies, and then uh, they make profits off of it, and then sell it back to the public who just paid for it with their taxes, right? We've gone over how the NIH spent well over $900 billion. We've talked about how every single drug in the FDA approved between 2010 and 2016 was, uh, you know, funded with research from the NIH. Uh, I mean, these are these are like the foundations of how this thing works. You know, I think with Gilead, another example to BB talks about is uh, Sovaldi, right? Uh, where Gilead acquired this after it spent $11 billion in 2012 buying out the original developer, Formasset, right? Which had worked on a line of hepatitis drugs. Within five years, right, that $11 billion uh, saw a return of $58 billion when a line of hepatitis treatments were won over in that deal with Pharmaset, right? Now, this same pattern is likely to hold with COVID-19 treatments, only the cycle of exploitation will be accelerated. It's a microcosm of a larger broken system, says Gill, right, in which you have a R&D system that's profit-driven rather than people-driven. And these problems existed before COVID-19, and now the U.S. is pumping billions of taxpayer funds into these companies, in most cases, with no strings attached. It's going to be, this is this is a beautiful a beautiful like you know highlight or a preview of like what can go wrong and will go wrong in the covid pandemic and then the post covid pandemic because if we have the united states sitting at the core of global distribution or hosting the companies that are sitting at the core of global distribution but also 
sitting at the top of an international system that manages how vaccines are distributed, how rights for them are distributed, that influences the way in which profits are prioritized by these companies, the way in which various companies or countries can get access to the plans for various vaccines. I mean, so what happens in the United States and the structure of its system and the relationship its government has with the pharmaceutical industry has a huge relationship with what the United States does to shape the international regime of how vaccines are produced, distributed, and accessible to the vast majority of the population in the human world, right? It is such a clusterfuck of a system. And it's not new, right? Like big pharma has been the enemy for a very long time. I think in a perverse way, the COVID-19 pandemic has allowed them to set themselves up as the saviors, right? Like, no, they're working together. It's not an arms race for a vaccine. It's everyone is working together and we're sharing and we're, we're, we're rolling back prices, baby. You know, we're doing good. But this is a long con, right? It's a long game here where they know they can't get away with price gouging on the vaccine right now. But as you laid out in the beginning of the episode, you know, companies like Pfizer and AstraZeneca are already projecting, okay, we can do this like next year, right? Like let the heat die down a little bit and then we can go back to business as usual. As the the representative there said, right, like something like Rimdesvir is, you know, pulled out of the trash heap, right? So they're, they're scrounging around in their, you know, in their recycling bin being like, oh, is there, is there something here? Is there, is there a failed drug that maybe actually we could uh, get a profit off of? Right. Um, oh, shit. Yeah, we found one. We found one and we can mark it way down. Uh, because this drug was a failure for for combating other diseases, but maybe it's good for COVID. And hell, everybody wants a, a, a potential treatment right now. It's a you know, it's a seller's market right now. Demand is high. They they always find these opportunities for scam and grift and extraction and profit in, in a way that you know. I think we have to sit back and and admire. <laughs> we, right, we you have, know, we have to admire it. They're, they're hustling, you know, at the end of the day, uh, game recognized game. And I recognize this one, you know, they're doing a good, you know, I worked in a pyramid scheme, you know, I've worked for fraudulent enterprises. I understand how hard it is uh, to get up in the morning every single day and lie to yourself and to the people <laughs> you're <laughs> trying to sell this shit to. I understand. I get it. And I respect their uh, callousness and their greed and their, uh, and their hunger and their uh, sheer, I don't know what the, how can I say it politely? How, how, how giant of a piece of shit they are, right? <laughs> for <laughs> for, for uh, contributing to this lovely system. So, I mean, that question of what might we do, right? Like, how how do we stop this big clusterfuck of a system? You know, I, I think one potential avenue of attack here, looking at their ability, uh, the ability of pharma companies to claim rights to the vaccine, right? It's It's all about these intellectual property rights. It's Property rights all the way down. That is the foundation of capitalism. And, and what we need to do is we need to ask questions about 
what kind of intellectual property rights do they have? What kind of rights does this give them over distribution of vaccines? How is this leading to vaccine apartheid, vaccine nationalism? There, there's a an interesting foreign policy essay uh, report that came out looking at this kind of like remaking of big pharma in a post-pandemic world, as it's called. And in this article, they, they lay out, right, like 20 years ago, the world's top drug producers teamed up with rich nations, led, of course, by the United States, um, to fight this global battle um, to limit the low-cost generic production of antiretroviral medicines used to treat HIV. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that we've been laying out in this episode as well is that what's happening with the COVID-19 vaccines, the potential here for price gouging, the potential for profiteering is not new, right? This is all part of a playbook that pharma companies along with countries like the United States have long been putting in place, right? And have long been doing with viruses, diseases like HIV. You know, in in South Africa, where um, AIDS deaths had reached 100,000 and were growing, the the battle was raging on several fronts. You know, as this uh, foreign policy article lays out, right, the Clinton administration was pressuring South Africa to stop production of generics meant to save its citizens' lives. Why? Because Big Pharma was suing the country with the same aim, even though brand name HIV drug manufacturers profited little from a place where few could afford drug cocktails costing up to 15000 per year, $15,000 per year. You know, it took years of global pressure to stop the Clinton administration and the lawsuit. South Africa was eventually able to access cheaper generic drugs, which today cost only $75 per year. But, but even then, with millions of lives at stake, public health has continued to take a backseat to intellectual property, right? The, and the, the pandemic, uh, you know, maybe it will finally change those calculations, but as we've been laying out, maybe not, right? I mean, maybe not. It's, it, it's certainly bringing to attention an issue that is immensely important, but also really showing uh, how big pharma, along with wealthy governments, like Canada, like the United States, right? Remember back to the COVAX pool, they, they're throwing their weight around to defend these high prices and these strict patent rules by pointing to the need to protect their intellectual property because it takes time and resources and it's expensive uh, to do this kind of research and development, this cycle of innovation to pump out new drugs. There, no one's going to be incentivized to do it if they don't get the intellectual property rights here. I mean, this also brings in you know, it's not only big pharma, it's not only uh, wealthy countries, but it's also uh, NGOs like the Gates Foundation, uh, which, you know, the Gates Foundation has been making big plays for the last 20 years on the front of vaccines, right? They have been making big plays around strengthening intellectual property rights for pharmaceuticals, um, while also trying to set up these market-based solutions uh, in places like Africa, right? The problem is, is that there's no market for $15,000 per year drug cocktails to combat HIV. Um, There's no market 
for vaccines in places like Africa because people can't afford it, right? But rather than thinking, okay, how do we take something like this out of the market? How do we loosen up these extremely strict patent rules and these intellectual property rights that allow drug companies to have monopolies over life-saving drugs? Uh, Instead, countries like the U.S., big pharma companies, hand-in-hand with the Gates Foundation, are saying, no, no, no. The problem is, is that these the markets are not developed enough. We need to, we need to make, we need advanced markets, not primitive markets, uh, in these places. That will, that will then solve the problem. The problem is not uh, that generic drug manufacturers in South Africa can produce uh, these HIV treatments for seventy five dollars per year. The problem is that no one in South Africa can afford the fifteen thousand dollar per year drug treatments. I mean. It, it is such a ass backwards way of looking at how to solve this problem, right? It's one that puts the market first, right? That puts, uh, you've got buyers, you've got sellers, you've got supply and you've got demand. And we just need to equal out the power relations between supply and demand and then let the market do its work. Right. You know, these top level views of having it be simply be like a problem of um, making sure there's enough to go around or producing enough, ignore the way in which conceptions of property, private property of property uh, intangibles, like I've guided by IP law, uh, by profits, you know, by desires of capital structure, the way that vaccines exist or created in the first place. I mean, think of, you know, one example that's highlighted out here is a compulsory license, right? Compulsory license is just pretty much a little feature of IP law where, you know, government can use a a patent without the owner's consent, right? If it needs to be used for a public health issue, right? You know, poor countries, uh, you know, in the global South have used compulsory licensing, right? Um, when they've had public health epidemics and they've also as a result been targeted by pharmaceutical firms whenever they've tried to do that, specifically when they've tried to do HIV because of how expensive it can be and how profitable it can be to the firms, even though it's not actually being profitable to them in those countries because no one can afford it, right? Uh, you know, uh, one example is with uh, AbbVie, right, which was, um, you know, a pharmaceutical company that held a lot of patents for HIV combination drug, lopinavir and ritonavir. And you know, for years, AbbVie F- FP rights uh, fought to control the drug's production, right? And But now, following the Israeli government's unilateral action, and to uh, step back a little bit, Israel, you know, used compulsory licensing to sidestep uh, AbbVie's patents, right? So following Israeli government actions, uh, uh, unilateral action, it has gone one step further and dropped enforcement of its patent claims for Lopinavir and Ritonavir worldwide. And that will primarily help HIV patients who have long needed the drug as it removes the last patent obstacles and will enable widespread production of low-cost generics. Under pressure from the Dutch government, which has already shown signs of a new attitude to medical IP, the Swiss pharmaceutical giant Roche shared the formula for a key component of its coronavirus test so that other companies can also produce kits. And that these government efforts, you know, are, I think, first steps towards exposing the hypocrisy of the rich countries when it comes to the lives of their own citizens, right? That intellectual property doesn't matter in the West, right? But it does matter when you have uh, grubby countries in the global South trying to do things like uh, prevent people from dying from uh, HIV but uh, because they cannot afford 
uh, to pay for the medical treatment, right? Really mm-hmm. important point to underscore here is that like this compulsory licensing, you know, this tool that these de- that developed countries use to sidestep intellectual property rights, you know, that wealthy countries use. Uh, when when low income um, countries try to use this, they come under fire by big pharmaceutical companies as well as wealthy countries. So as you just laid out, right, like there there is a hypocrisy at play here that says like, no, 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 the lives of citizens of wealthy countries matters more than intellectual property. But the lives and importantly, the health of the market in lower income countries matters less than uh, or, you know, the lives of people matter less than the health of the market, than intellectual property rights. It's a tool that is not able to be deployed equally in the same ways, depending on your geopolitical power position in the global economy. You know, as a result, and really the purpose of this article is to lay out that pressure has been building, right? And that intellectual property rights are becoming a target Uh, at the international level, right? That we know that at the domestic level in the United States, vaccine distribution is structured by uh, the pharmaceutical industry's, you know, dominance in the political arenas here. Uh, The massive amounts of lobbying, the, uh, and, you know, in other parts of the world, it's also structured at a lower level by uh, the agreements that they made with these pharmaceutical companies, right? Who in of themselves are greedy institutions and firms uh, to get like large amounts of doses that come directly out of supplies that might be accessible for other countries in the global south, right? But at the much larger level, also preventing just like more places from producing as many places as possible from producing the vaccine is is ultimately uh, the restrictions on getting access to any of these designs, right? And allowing producers in India or in Bangladesh or in other parts of the world to to rapidly mobilize within four to six months. I mean, that's the fastest they can mobilize them, you know, uh, production of vaccines or generics, right? The uh, article, you know, pointed out that, you know, about 150 civil society groups and activists are already demanding this calling on the World Intellectual Property Organization uh, to support countries that were prioritizing public health and encouraging IP holders to voluntarily remove restrictions. And the World Health Organization was supporting a Costa Rican proposal, uh, an interesting proposal that we'll talk a- more about later, uh, to basically pull intellectual property for technologies needed to combat coronavirus so that all countries, but especially poorer countries, would be able to access, develop, and manufacture treatment and other technologies at lower cost. Uh, you also have the Medicines Patent Pool, which was an organization that successfully shared IP to lower the cost of generic production for medicines related to HIV, tuberculosis, hepatitis C, other diseases. You know, this is, they've expanded their mandate to include COVID-19, right? These are some of the moves that are going to be necessary, right? There was pressure also with the World Trade Organization from India and South Africa to waive uh, IP uh, rights uh, to some of the main vaccines. And that was pushed back against by the White House, by Europe, and eventually shot down with the World Trade Organization, I think last week, uh, said that we will not be waiving the rights for these vaccines. Then, you know, they own them and they have a right to, to collect the profit from them. And instead, there needs to be a negotiation at the individual at the country levels uh, between the countries and the firms, right? And that we will not abide or allow like violation of IP law, uh, which makes sense when you consider how important it is to, again, as we said, firms that have historically been greedy, aggressive, hostile, uh, mendacious, cruel to an, an inhumane point, hunting down and shaking down countries that where the average citizen cannot afford 
even half a year, even probably likely even a month of the treatment at the prices that they're demanding. Yo, we'll, we'll bring the episode to a close with a really telling story here as well that got, you know, a, a fair amount of attention recently. I mentioned the Gates Foundation earlier as well and, and the way that they are, you know, that they, they've like they've they've poured a fortune into transforming the vaccine industry. Right. Like like they have been focusing on this issue for a long time, for decades now and really setting themselves up as a heavyweight in terms of public health, especially in the global South. And, and, and you know, largely now the Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, like their preferences and their contributions to these efforts are now really central and, and extremely influential. That also means that they get to shape how intellectual property uh, unfolds, how markets for healthcare unfold, what they look like, what's important here. You know, there was a lot of attention recently when publicly funded researchers at Oxford uh, developed a COVID-19 vaccine and they and their whole plan was to donate royalty free the license for this to manufacturers, right? Like this is a public good. We're going to make it open source. We're going to allow anybody and everybody to do this in much the same way that um, as you laid out, right? Like the Dutch government put pressure on Swiss pharmaceutical um, companies to share the IP for coronavirus testing kits, right? Like, no, this is more important than intellectual property. We need to make medicine open source here so everybody can have access to it. Instead, what ended up happening in Oxford is that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation intervened. They stepped in. Uh, you know, as a Kaiser Health News report um, lays out, the foundation pushed researchers whose work it helped fund. And this is really important is that uh, the Gates Foundation money is everywhere. They have contributed so much funding to stuff, which allows them to pressure, to influence, to have a say, to ensure that their interests are represented. And so the Gates Foundation um, intervened into the Oxford researchers' plan to make this a royalty-free open source license and pressured them into signing over exclusive rights uh, with AstraZeneca with no guarantee that the vaccine would be made available at low prices. In an interview about this um, that I watched with Bill Gates, this question was raised, right? Uh, it was it was framed around like conspiracy theorists, like friend of the show, Paris Marx, um, who had a viral tweet about this. Conspiracy theorists are saying that you are, uh, that you, Bill Gates, the magnanimous one, are taking vaccines out of the public realm and putting them into private markets. Now that 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 can't be right, is it? Bill Gates could not deny the accusations and said, "Well, but instead what he does is he provides justifications for." It. He says, "No, no, no. The the problem is is that, you know, things like creating drugs and vaccines uh, is, is, is really technical. It requires a lot of expertise. Um, it requires a lot of sensitivity to conditions, right? Like the factories where these things are manufactured have to be just, just up to snuff, right? They have to be so good to ensure that not only are the drugs and vaccines effective, but also to ensure that there's public trust 
in that effectiveness right. that people actually take the drugs and get the get the shots in their arms. And you know, as Bill Gates laid out, you know, these these factories that want to do generic manufacturing in, in places like India and Bangladesh and Africa, you know, they're just really not up to the global standards um, that we expect of drug manufacturing, not like companies like AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer, right? They already have the capital. They already have the facilities to do this. So we we simply cannot allow these generic, you know, he didn't say third world, but you know, he wanted to say third mm-hmm. world factories right. uh, to produce these drugs and have access to it. Um, instead, we have to rely on our world-class standard pharmaceutical companies um, to do this for everybody. Now, the the... The implication here is that we have to rely on Big Pharma to do this because they have the capital and they have the resources and they have the facilities. But never did the question seemingly enter his mind, and it certainly wasn't raised in this interview. Wouldn't it be better to actually have like a widely globally distributed manufacturing system of these drugs that would allow for equitable access for cheaper prices Um, And rather than signing over and pressuring people like these Oxford researchers into signing exclusive rights to the intellectual property, wouldn't it be better to to keep it open source, but then to devote the Gates Foundation's own very large uh, vault of money to devote resources from the UN, to devote resources from places like, uh, you know, like the COVAX pool, right? The, uh, you know, well-funded, uh, developed countries. Wouldn't it be better to devote resources into creating world-class factories um, in places like the global south so that they can have access in their own backyard to producing cheap affordable drugs and vaccines for for their people that option never entered his mind why because we have to secure intellectual property rights that i mean that that mm, i mean come that, on that's an axiom here we can't question it all of our conclusions have to follow deductively from the axiom that intellectual property rights must be secured and they matter and they are important and if we take that then the only option here is to give those intellectual property rights to companies like astrazeneca i mean it it it, it just reveals this this corrupt network of interest in global pharmaceuticals and and global healthcare, right? Where one hand washes the other. Um, They are constantly reinforcing each other's position of influence, power, and profit in the global system. It's, It's quite enraging. One side of their mouth speaks about how this is a global health emergency, equitable access and distribution is immensely important, blah, blah, blah. While at the same time, you look at what their hands are doing. You watch their mouth and you hear what they're saying, but you look at what their hands are doing. It's quite the opposite, right? As Jeremy just uh, mimed in the in the in the chat, right? Their mouths are flapping while their hands are punching, right? <laughs> that that's what you have to look out at here. This this layout of the the kind of business model of big pharma is really important foundation for understanding um, how 
things like intellectual property rights matter so much uh, in public health, in a global healthcare system. I mean, and just in general, right? It's also no accident that someone like Bill Gates made his billions and billions and billions by being uh, one of the most reviled intellectual property vultures um, in the 80s and 90s, right? And has managed to completely rehabilitate his reputation by instead channeling this through the good works of the Gates Foundation while maintaining many of the same ideologies, many of the same commitments. (laughs) Jeremy just threw in the chat. Hear me out. Vaccines as NFTs. All right, I'm pivoting now. That's the real solution here. (laughs) We need every vaccine to be on the Ethereum blockchain um, so that we can keep complete and total track over it. This is the real vaccine passport here. Uh, You got to show through the blockchain that you have proof of vaccination. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. That's that's the future. That's actually the real microchip that they're talking about. We're going to get rid of the fiat currency and then the blockchain will be the new chip that goes inside of everybody to track where they are and who they are and what they're doing and who they met with, but importantly, when they got vaccinated. <laughs> so uh, I, think that, I think I'll bring it to a close for this episode of TMK. And stick around in the premium episode, patreon.com slash this machine kills. Um, where I mean, we've we've you know we've laid out a foundation here for thinking about uh, this kind of global political economy of of big pharma of public health. I think we're going to dig a lot more deeper into this idea of of intellectual property, capitalism, patent capitalism, into the the role and positions and ideologies and influence and interest and so on and so forth of people like the Gates Foundation, trying not to get blocked by the bots by mentioning the words Gates vaccine uh, and COVID all in the same sentence. Um, Shout out to, again, to Paris Marx, who um, had a really great interview on the uh, influence uh, of the Gates Foundation um, in, in the most recent episode of Tech Won't Save Us and was roundly and automatically and immediately blocked on Twitter and locked out of his account um, for like 12 hours or 24 hours um, simply for mentioning those three words in the, in the same tweet. With that, thanks for listening. Join us on the Patreon for the premium episode. Subscribe, etc. And uh, we'll see y'all then. Later.
It's machine kills.